currently undertaking the monumental task of going through all four Gospels simultaneously to get a comprehensive sweep of the whole story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four separate accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Last time we went over some background material, talked about the authors and who their target audience was, the similarities and differences between each account, and then covered their own personal introductions to each account. And by doing that, we set apart some special time to focus on the physics of a controversial doctrine known as the Trinity of God. We had to because John's introduction focused on it head on. Tonight, we'll forge ahead and cover the conception and birth of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ and what we commonly think of as the Christmas story. And we'll start in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 5. I'll be reading from several different English translations, the King James, the New American Standard, the Amplified, the NIV, and the Living. At times I may single out one translation, while other times I may try to combine all five. just wanted to let you know in case you're trying to follow along. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days when Herod was king of Judea, there was a certain priest whose name was Zechariah. He was a member of the Adijah division of the Temple Service Corps. Zechariah's wife was also a member of the priest tribe of the Jews, a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child, for Elizabeth was barren, and both were very far advanced in years. Notice carefully here, folks, in verse 6, where it says that they were both righteous in the sight of God. There's no such thing as a righteous person. Remember Isaiah 64, verse 6? In God's eyes, our righteousness is as filthy rags. All throughout the Bible is this theme that righteousness is something that cannot be achieved. It can't be earned. It's only after accepting God's payment for our guilt that he will look down on us and see his payment for our unrighteousness and then see righteousness. That's why it says in verse 6 that they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. That's talking about the rules that were laid out in the Old Testament for sin offering. You see, folks, God's nature is one of perfection. He doesn't attempt to be perfect. He is perfect in every way. It's hard for us to imagine, but just as it's in our nature to be imperfect, it's God's nature to be perfect without a single flaw. And that's not something he aspires towards. It's something that he is. It's his physical nature. He can't help it. He's perfect in his wisdom, perfect in his power, perfect in his love, and unfortunately, perfect in his justice. And God doesn't invent the rules of justice. He simply follows them. They are what they are. Since he's perfect in his wisdom, he knows what perfect justice is. And since he's perfect in his justice, he's forced to follow out that justice. It's not a matter of punishment or revenge. It's a matter of debt. The wages of all sin is debt. The imperfect must be removed from God's presence because God's perfection is impenetrable. That which is imperfect must die. But here's God's dilemma. While he's perfect in his justice, he's also perfect in his love. And God is incapable of being imperfect in any way. So what does God do? If everyone who is imperfect died physically and spiritually, and that's what perfect justice is, then God would no longer be perfect in his love. But if he forgave everyone, then he'd no longer be perfect in his justice. See what a dilemma being perfect is? He loves us because he's perfect in his love, but he's also perfect in his justice and perfect in his wisdom of justice. Sin, no matter what it is, it must be paid for with death. It's a debt that has to be paid. 
But here's where God's perfection in his wisdom intervenes between his perfect justice and perfect love. An imperfect being can escape justice if that imperfect being will offer a substitute to God that God will accept. And the only way God can accept a substitute is if that substitute is perfect. If the substitute is imperfect, then it's not worth anything. It's worth no more than you or I. It's like a balance transfer from one credit card to another. You can't transfer the balance of a maxed out credit card to another one if the other one's maxed out too. So God, perfect in his wisdom, established his own balance transfer. A human being with a zero sin debt could die and pay for the sin debt of all humanity. But then there's the other problem. Is there a human being with a zero sin debt? And even if there was one, would he be willing to accept the position of being mankind's balance transfer? The answer to both questions is an obvious no. Of course not. No human on earth could ever qualify to be a substitute, and no human on earth would ever accept the position of being one, unless that human was God himself in the flesh. Only God could be perfect in his justice enough to be a sinless human being all the days of his life. And only God could be perfect in his love enough to volunteer for this. And only God could be perfect in his wisdom enough to know how to achieve all of the above. And that's what the Gospels are all about. But the idea of a sinless substitute had to be ingrained in the minds of man before Jesus came so they would know what was to come. That's what the rules laid out in the Old Testament for sin offering were all about. They were foreshadowing models of the balanced transfer that was to come. It was first established in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve fell to sin, they both realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. So they sewed fig leaves together for garments. And that was the very first act of religion in earth history. Adam and Eve covering their own shame in their own way. But God came along and covered them with animal skins, showing them that only by the shedding of innocent blood would their sins be covered. The animals didn't do anything wrong. They didn't deserve this. The only command that God's ever given to animals is to be fruitful and multiply. And before Adam and Eve sinned, nothing in the entire universe had ever died. And the relationship between humanity and the animals was a lot different before the curse. Animals didn't exist for food because there was no debt. After Adam sinned, an innocent creature had to die to cover his guilt. Try to imagine how much that hurt Adam to see that. That was God showing Adam a foreshadowing model of what was to come. In Exodus, God gave his Ten Commandments. And then later in the rest of the Old Testament, those Ten Commandments were amplified and explained. And then all of the rules and regulations of atonement was laid out for whenever any of those rules or regulations were broken. The rules laid out... The sacrificial lambs, the sacrificial scapegoats, they were all models that were foreshadowing the real sacrificial lamb that was to come, the Lamb of God. And those sacrifices were never meant to be taken lightly. Folks, I'm a huge animal lover. And I can't imagine living in a culture where I had to go out on a regular basis and slay a lamb as a sacrifice to pay for my sins. But the disturbing factor in all of that was the point it wasn't supposed to be casual or routine. It was meant to be upsetting. Because one day, God himself would provide the ultimate sacrifice of innocence, his only son. Laid out in the Old Testament were even the rules and regulations of how it was to be done and where it was to be done and who it was to do it. They had a temple 
with a middle room called the Holy of Holies, because that was where the holiness of God would shine. And nobody was ever allowed to go in there because, um, well, standing in the holiness of God was a severe health hazard to human beings, if you know what I'm saying. Only the high priest could go in there, and even he couldn't go in there but once a year, after a strenuous routine of sin offerings and ceremonial washings. The door to that room was covered with a veil. But outside the Holy of Holies was another room, sometimes called the inner room or the holy place. Many Bible translations will call it the sanctuary. Then you had the outside with two courts. You had an inner court and an outer court. And people would come up to the outer court, and they were represented by priests to the high priest. And the high priest would go into the inner room, and then once a year into the Holy of Holies. The reason why I'm bringing all of this up now, folks, is because the temple... The sacrifices, the burning of incense, the ceremonial washings, the priests, the high priest, all of this was laid out in the Old Testament. And the Jews had been carrying out all of this for thousands of years. But God set it all up as a model. A model that was symbolic of what was to come. Now, I know I'm jumping ahead of the story here. Jesus hasn't even been born yet, but I've got to get this in here. With the temple, you would offer up a sacrificial lamb to pay the sin debt. The high priest was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies of the temple as an intercessor between God himself and the nation of Israel. We'll find out later in the Gospels that Jesus becomes our new sacrificial lamb. One of his titles will be the Lamb of God. Now, if it stops there, that'd be one thing. But we find out later in the New Testament that after Jesus died, rose from the dead, and returned to heaven, he became our high priest. The book of Hebrews calls him our high priest. So not only does Jesus pay our sin debt, but he also intercedes for you and me to God the Father in heaven. But anyway, we're jumping ahead of ourselves. The point is, Zechariah and his wife weren't righteous, as none of us are righteous. But they were righteous in the sight of God because they walked blameless in all of the commandments and requirements of the Lord that were laid out in the Old Testament. And they were both members of the priesthood. So Zach was a priest that worked at the temple, but they had no child, for Elizabeth was barren, and both were far advanced in years. It's kind of hard for us to imagine in today's culture what a social embarrassment that was for people back then, to be married and old, but without kids. You know, everybody knew. He's impotent. She's barren. In their whole town, as we'll find out here in a minute, Elizabeth was known in her community as the barren one. We'll find out later that this is a problem that both of them had been praying about for several years with no answer. And now it's too late because they're both too old. He's old and impotent. She's old and barren. Verse 8. One day Zechariah's division was on duty and the honor fell to him by lot to enter the inner sanctuary and burn incense before the Lord. The Jewish priesthood, folks, was divided into 24 divisions and each division would be on temple duty twice a year for a week. Each division had around 300 people, and 56 of them were chosen by lot, kind of like grabbing straws or rolling dice. 56 people within each division were chosen by lot to do something that day in the temple. So this wasn't some casual thing for Zach. It was a big deal. Out of 300, 56 of them were chosen by lot to go into the temple. Not the Holy of Holies, but the inner room connected to it called the Holy Place, or as some Bible translations call it, the sanctuary. And that was a big deal. For Zach, this was huge. So anyway, one day Zechariah's division was on duty, and the honor fell to him by lot to enter the inner room and burn incense before the Lord. The burning of incense was symbolic of prayers going before the Lord. Prayers of the entire nation of Israel. 
So this isn't just an honor because he gets to go into the inner room next to the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's an honor because the attention of the entire nation of Israel is focused on him. Symbolically, he's carrying the weight of the entire nation's prayers to present them before the Lord. Continuing in verse 10. Meanwhile, a great crowd stood outside in the temple court, praying as they always did during that part of the service when the incense was being burned. When Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel suddenly appeared, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was startled and terrified. You know, we don't really know much about the physical nature of angels or their capabilities. But all throughout the Bible, it shows that they don't seem to have a problem materializing in some physical form within our space-time. They talk as humans. They eat meals. They take people by the hand. And they're capable of direct combat. All throughout the Bible, they always seem to appear as men. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 gives you the impression that many of us may have encountered angels without knowing it. I guess it all depends on how they present themselves. As for what they're capable of, you all know the story of the firstborn who were killed in Egypt. One angel did that. Another angel in a single night killed 185,000 Syrians. One angel in one night. Do the math. If a night equals 12 hours, assuming each Syrian was killed one at a time, that's almost five Syrians per second. One angel. So while they may look like normal humanoid beings, they apparently aren't. The book of Hebrews calls them supernatural creatures who were created by God to be his ministering servants. They also have ranks. Don't know how many, but we are aware of some. There's cherubim angels, seraphim angels, archangels. Archangels seem to be the most powerful of the angels. And we don't know how many angels there are in total, but for whatever reason, we do know the names of three of them. The most famous one is the one who fell, Satan. Although that wasn't his original angelic name before he fell, his name was Lucifer. Michael is the name of another angel we know about. He's always engaged in battle on behalf of the nation of Israel. Another one is Gabriel, probably most famous for his appearance in the book of Daniel. Now, while they do appear as human beings, they do at times appear to be much more. The Old Testament speaks of them riding in chariots of fire. The chariot was the highest form of human transportation available to the minds of those riders. So I don't think they were literally chariots with fire coming out of them, but they were definitely some form of technology that the angels used, which was very bright, very fast, and very radiant. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 7 says that God makes his angels flames of fire. So take that and do whatever you want with it. Use your imagination. These beings, these supernatural creatures, have never officially been given a name. We call them angels because that's how they're addressed most of the time in the scripture. But that's not an official designation of these beings. The word angel simply means messenger. At times in the Old Testament, they appear without the purpose of sending a message on behalf of the Lord. But they are carrying out some order of some kind. And in those cases, you'll notice that they're called in those particular passages of scripture, men. It'll say a man appeared clothed in white, or something like that. Not meaning that they were actually human, but humanoid in form. Something else about angels that's important to point out is that they are not resurrected humans. One of the fairy tales of Christian folklore is that when a Christian person dies, they become an angel. When we were kids, we all remember the cartoons where somebody, be it Sylvester or Donald Duck or whoever, 
When they'd get hit by a train or something, the next scene would show them floating up towards the sky with white wings and a golden harp. Hollywood's Christmas classics give you the same impression. The angel in It's a Wonderful Life was a clockmaker who lived during the days of Mark Twain. And after he died and went to heaven, he became an angel, but he was an angel without any wings. He hadn't earned them yet because he apparently failed all of his other past assignments to help the people of Earth. But after dealing with Jimmy Stewart's character, he got his wings. Cary Grant in The Bishop's Wife was an angel, and there's a short moment in the movie that kind of gives you the impression that while he's on Earth trying to straighten out the problem in that movie, he shows a little bit of longing to be a part of the Earth again. It doesn't last long, it's real quick, but it implies that he used to be human. Now he's an angel, always working, trying to help out humanity on the behest of God, who's watching over all in heaven. Even Michael Landon's TV show from the 80s, Highway to Heaven, was built around this misconception that angels are resurrected human beings. But there's no biblical basis for this, folks. Now don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with enjoying It's a Wonderful Life or Highway to Heaven. Those are some very entertaining and morally uplifting shows. Just understand that the idea of angels being resurrected humans is a misconception. Angels are a completely different species of life altogether. Each individual angel is a direct creation of God. Several places in the Bible refer to them as God's holy angels, meaning they're sinless. That's why they can stand in the very presence of God and survive. One more thing about angels, they do not allow themselves to be worshipped. They're soldiers and messengers carrying out the will of God. All of the so-called Christian books that talk about contacting your angel, or controlling your angel, or wielding supernatural power by commanding your angel. That's a pile of demonic horse crap, folks. If you're interested in wielding supernatural power, study the armor of God that's laid out in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's get back to Zechariah here in the book of Luke, verse 11. When Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel suddenly appeared standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was startled and terrified, but the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, because I have come to tell you that God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are to name him John. Both you and Elizabeth will have lots of joy and happiness at his birth, and many will be happy with you, for he will be one of the Lord's great men. He must never touch wine or strong drink, because he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will persuade many a Jew to turn to the Lord his God. He will be a man of rugged spirit and power, like Elijah, the prophet of old. And he will precede the coming of the Messiah, preparing the people for his arrival. He will soften adult hearts to become like little children, and will change disobedient minds to the wisdom of faith. Folks, the angel's words here are filled with a whole lot more than just a promise of answered prayer. Israel had been waiting for a very long time for the coming of the Messiah. All throughout the Old Testament, which was the only scriptures they had, were prophecies of the coming king of Israel. But if you took all of those prophecies and laid them out in front of you, you'd notice somewhat of a contradiction in them. Most of the prophecies spoke of a coming king who would take over the world, destroy the wicked, imprison the devil, and restore the nation of Israel to its former glory, and to take away the curse that was put upon the planet and restore everything into its proper place. But a lot of other prophecies spoke of a lowly, meek, and humble servant who would turn himself over to be killed to take upon the sin of the world. So either one set of these prophecies are wrong, or they're talking about two separate events, two visits, 
one of wrath, one of love, one that's loud, one that's soft, one that's bringing judgment, one that's bringing forgiveness. Now, the very last prophecy that they had in their Bible was recorded in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it was published some 400 years before Zach's day. It talks about a day coming that will burn like an oven, a day in which all of the wicked will be literally burned up and turned to stubble. It talks about how Israel will be leaping for joy and will tread down the wicked as ashes under the soles of their feet. Then it says, before this happens, before all of this happens, God will send to Israel Elijah the prophet to turn people around and wake them up as to what's really going on. This prophecy, recorded in Malachi chapter 4, was the freshest prophecy on the minds of the people of Zach's day. But it's a prophecy of Jesus' second coming, not his first one. The book of Revelation covers with exhaustive detail the great and terrible day of the Lord that Malachi is talking about here. But in Revelation chapter 11, it talks about two witnesses who represent God to the planet Earth during all of the plagues and the bowls of wrath. It doesn't give you any names, but a prevalent theory that I happen to agree with because of other prophecies all throughout the Bible is that those two witnesses will be Moses and Elijah. I want to be real careful here because the book of Revelation doesn't identify the names of those two witnesses. But judging from so many other prophecies and events laid out in the scripture, I believe they will be Moses and Elijah. I don't want to spend too much time on that here, especially since we'll have plenty of time to get into it later in the Gospels when Moses and Elijah make a personal appearance to Jesus. But clearly, the prophecy in Malachi wasn't talking about Jesus' first coming. But because it was fresh... In everyone's minds, during Zach's day, everyone was waiting for Elijah the prophet. Because according to the prophecy in Malachi, that was the sign that the great and terrible day of the Lord was at hand. It said before all of those things, God would send to Israel Elijah the prophet. And that's why the angel carefully told Zach that his son would grow up and go out in the spirit and manner of Elijah. That's also why the angel told Zach to name him John, just in case anyone got confused. It didn't work, though. John's manner of preaching turned out to be so much like Elijah that people kept asking him, Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Of course, you know, each time he'd get asked that, he'd tell them no. John was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but not the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4. John even goes so far to point that out when he's asked once. Read the fine print. God said in Malachi that he would send Elijah, not somebody like Elijah, but Elijah himself. And the timing would occur before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That hasn't happened yet. But the great and terrible day of the Lord was what people of Zach's day were waiting for. People combined all the prophecies of Jesus' first and second coming into one big event. Now, the big deal about what the angel said to Zach isn't just that his prayer was heard and that he was about to have a son, but that he would have the honor of preparing the way for the Lord. And that's the other big deal about what the angel told Zach. The Messiah was finally coming. But when you hear Zach's response to the angel here in verse 18, it's obvious he didn't hear anything after your wife will bear you a son. Didn't hear a single word after that. Here's Zach's response to the angel, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, but that's impossible. I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well advanced in years. How can I be sure of this? Now, folks, just wait till you hear the angel's response. 
To the best of my knowledge, this is the only place in the entire Bible that an angel responds emotionally to something that was said to him. And just wait till you hear the bomb that the angel's about to drop on Zach. Check this out, verse 19. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. You will now be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you don't believe me. But my words are of a kind that will be fulfilled in the appointed time. Folks, I'm sure things turned around for Zach as soon as he heard the angel tell him who he was speaking to. It wasn't just any angel, it was Gabriel. He was made famous by his appearances in the Old Testament, but most notably to Daniel. Daniel's prophetic book had been around for 600 years. Everybody knew who Gabriel was. And you got to feel for Zach, because I'm sure rushing through his mind as soon as he heard who he was talking to was, Wow! This is the angel that spoke to Daniel. Who am I compared to Daniel? Daniel's faith saved him in the lion's den. Here I am questioning whether or not my wife can have a kid. Now, I don't know for certain if that's what Zach was thinking, but I kind of get the impression that part of Gabriel's response was in anticipation of that line of thinking. Gabriel said, I stand in the very presence of God. You know, don't be impressed because I stood in the presence of Daniel. I stand in the presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. You will now be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you don't believe me. But my words are of a kind that will be fulfilled in the appointed time. You might think Gabriel was kind of harsh with Zach, but don't forget that Zach was a priest. The kind of doubt he showed could be expected from just about anybody, including me. But Zach was a Jewish priest of the temple. He knows, or he's supposed to know, the scriptures backwards and forwards. And the time of the Messiah was at hand. And here, he's bringing the prayers of the nation of Israel to the Lord in the inner room of the temple. The faith of the entire nation of Israel was upon him to deliver prayers before the Lord. And when an angel shows up and tells him that his wife will have a son to prepare the way for the Lord, he doubts it and then demands proof. Like an angel materializing in the inner room of the temple isn't enough. Hey, Zach, you want proof? How about speechlessness for nine months? That's how you can be sure. If I can make you speechless for nine months, God can make your impotent seed get your barren wife pregnant. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the crowds outside were waiting for Zechariah to come out and wondered why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them, and they realized from his hand gestures that he must have seen a vision in the temple. Yeah, no kidding. He stayed on at the temple for the remaining days of his temple duties and then returned home, but still he couldn't talk. Soon afterwards, Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months and shouted, How kind the Lord is to take away my disgrace of having no children. The following month, God sent the angel Gabriel to a virgin named Mary, who lived in a village in Galilee called Nazareth. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Hail, O favored one, endued with grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed and favored of God are you among all other women. Some translations say before or above all other women. But when Mary saw him, she was greatly troubled, disturbed, and confused at what he said and kept revolving in her mind at what such a greeting might mean. Now, folks, it's a good thing for us that Mary was confused about Gabriel's greeting because that greeting has been misinterpreted by many Christian groups for centuries. And since Mary was confused at Gabriel's greeting, Gabriel himself explains what it means in the next verse. 
And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found grace, free spontaneous favor, and loving kindness with God. And listen, you will become pregnant and will give birth to a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and imminent and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his forefather David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob throughout the ages. Of his reign there will be no end. Folks, the Most High is one of God's many titles. The Most High because there is nothing or no one higher than God. And she will give birth to a son that will be called the Son of the Most High. Mary is the only woman on the entire planet in all of earth history who can make the claim that she carried, gave birth to, and then raised the child who was the human incarnation of God himself. Unfortunately, a lot of Christian groups attempt to either downplay this or make it something bigger into what it really is, and they misinterpret Gabriel's initial greeting to Mary as a reason for it. But Gabriel explained what he meant. Think about this. Our salvation is because of Jesus' completed work on the cross. And today, right now, as I'm speaking, he is seated on his Father's throne in heaven as an intercessor for us to the Father. But it all started with nine months inside a human womb. And that human was Mary. It's not to be taken lightly. Let's honor Mary for who she is and what she did. But on the other hand, she shouldn't be worshipped. You can go too far in either direction. Don't downplay what happened by ignoring the fact that she carried our Lord to term. I mean, wow. And God chose her. Why? I don't know. But what an honor. On the other hand, she's only human. You can't put her on the same level of honor and respect that's due to Jesus Christ. Mary didn't pre-exist the creation as a member of the Trinity like Jesus did. She didn't create the heavens and the earth with God the Father as Jesus did. She's human. And she didn't apply for this position. She didn't earn it. God freely chose to choose her. That's what Gabriel's entire greeting means. So honor her on the one hand, but don't get carried away. Now there's something else here in Gabriel's announcement to Mary that a lot of people skip over. Not only would her son be called the Son of the Most High but that God would give to him the throne of his forefather, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob throughout the ages, and of his reign there will be no end. Now, Gabriel isn't the first one to mention this. It's promised all throughout the Old Testament that the coming king would sit on David's throne forever. People wonder about that because David's throne doesn't exist anymore, and it didn't exist in Mary's day either. The king that they had back then was an Edomite appointed by Rome. And right now, as we speak, Jesus is on a throne, but it's not David's throne. Jesus is seated on his Father's throne. And in no time has Jesus ever sat at David's throne. So not all of Gabriel's promise to Mary here has been fulfilled yet. Some people don't take that part of the promise seriously. They tend to think many of the prophecies of Jesus' rule over the earth have been dismissed since Israel rejected him as their Messiah. But that rejection wasn't a surprise it was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament book. And Gabriel knew about Isaiah. That same book also prophesied the virgin birth. And it didn't get dismissed. This is one of those little areas where today's Christians kind of skirt over this because we try to separate the spiritual from the political and the scientific. But the more you understand all three, the more you realize that you really can't separate them. 
Ephesians talks about spiritual warfare that influences the physical world, including the world of politics. And since God created the universe, all of the laws of physics were put into place by God, not by scientists. And Jesus will one day physically sit on David's throne and be a political leader of the planet Earth. And this fact has been confirmed all throughout the Old Testament, both the virgin birth and the eternal kingdom, which Jesus will one day physically, literally rule on a physical throne on the planet Earth. Try separating politics from religion then. You won't be able to separate religion from science then either because God will remove the curse that he put upon the earth after Adam and Eve fell to sin. The laws of physics will completely change. Speaking of the laws of physics, Mary is a virgin, and she's well aware of this. And she asks Gabriel, How can this be, since I have no intimacy with any man as a husband? Now, before you get worried about Gabriel's response to Mary after observing his response to Zach, understand that this question isn't a question of doubt. Zach said, That's impossible. But Mary isn't barren. She's not having a difficult time getting pregnant. She's a virgin. That's a different thing here. So her question here is more of a question of curiosity and instruction. You know, what am I supposed to do? Then the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the holy, pure, and sinless thing which shall be born of you will be called the Son of God. The word overshadowed here is the same word that is used in Exodus 40 to describe the presence of God in the Holy of Holies of the temple. The virgin birth. Folks, have you ever wondered why it had to be a virgin birth? There are several reasons, but I'm just going to focus on two of the most important ones. God is one God. But because God exists in more than three dimensions, he exists in more than one person. To the best of our knowledge of the scripture, there appears to be three of them. We have a problem with that because of our limited three-dimensional thinking. And for a more scientific explanation of all that, we went over it in the Gospels Part 1. If you're interested, check it out. But God is a single God with three persons in a higher dimension. One of those three persons separated himself from the other two to become a human being inside our dimension of reality. And the reason why it had to be a virgin birth is because when a man and a woman have sex and conceive, a brand new life is formed. But the second member of the Trinity was already alive. He wasn't human yet, but he was already living. This is how Jesus could be called God and be called the Son of God at the same time. All three members of the Trinity are the eternal God. No member is ranked higher or lower than the other. All three of them are God himself. But the second member of the Trinity lowered himself and entered into our dimension of reality to become a human being. He is literally God in the flesh. But because he was born of a virgin who was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, the human she would conceive would literally be called the Son of God, just as Gabriel told her. That's one reason why it had to be a virgin birth. The second reason is because the imperfection of man, the mortality of man, the sin nature of man, all of that is in our genes, it's in our DNA, it's in our bloodline, and it's passed on through the male. Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 points out that it's through Adam that all have sinned. All of us are sons and daughters of Adam. The human being who would be God in the flesh would have to be a direct creation of God to skip over all that. So that's why it had to be a virgin birth. Then the angel said to Mary, Listen, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and now 
It is during the sixth month of her pregnancy, she who was called the barren one. With God, nothing is impossible, and no word from God shall be without power or impossible of fulfillment. That's an awesome line, folks. I've got it highlighted in my Bible. With God, nothing is impossible. That doesn't mean he'll do anything you want. He won't violate his word or his nature. Remember, God is perfect in every way, not just his power. But as for what's possible, you include God in something, you put him in the equation, there are no limits to how high something can get or what can be achieved. With God, nothing is impossible. And when Gabriel said no word from God was without power or impossible fulfillment, he was referring to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which was written around 700 years before Mary's day. It says, quote, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the young woman who is unmarried and a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which after translation means God with us. Unquote. Then Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to what you have said. And the angel left her. And at that time, Mary hurried to the highlands of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived, to visit her aunt Elizabeth. And it occurred that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and then cried out with a loud cry and exclaimed, How blessed and favored of God among all other women are you! And blessed and favored of God is the fruit of your womb. And how have I deserved this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Folks, how did she know? Mary herself just found out about this. How did Elizabeth know? Somebody might say it's because she was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit told her. Well, yeah, that's true. But he didn't tell her with audible words. There's a lot of controversy surrounding what people think it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit or controlled by the Holy Spirit, or led by the Holy Spirit, or sealed by the Holy Spirit. Each one of those phrases means something completely different, and each phrase is wrought with doctrinal controversy. Those controversial phrases are used all throughout the Bible, and most of the controversy comes from a lot of misconceptions of what each of those phrases really mean, and especially the phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people think of the Holy Spirit as a supernatural form of gasoline that can be poured into people and it can fill you up. You may have even heard people use the phrase, drunk in the Spirit. There's no biblical basis for any of that. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. So what does it really mean when the Bible says filled with the Holy Spirit? In the original Greek, the word used for filled is fully influenced or completely influenced. Why does it use that phrase, fully influenced? It's because there's always a war of influence within ourselves, an internal war between self-influence and God's influence, self-taught truths versus God's truth, the way we see reality that's influenced by self-observations, which are always limited, versus the way God sees reality which is always complete. And who wins that battle of influence will always depend on who gets more attention. And what happens is, when we start giving God and His Bible more serious attention, then God has more influence. And just like any other battle, God starts to work on all of the strongest areas of deception and confusion that influence us, chipping away until all of those strong areas are removed. And when that happens, truth replaces it. 
Now, many times, a lot of truth is already in there, but it's in pieces. It's not working together to influence us because deception or confusion has it all blocked. And when some of those roadblocks are removed, truth comes together and starts working to influence us. When numerous roadblocks are removed, then numerous truths come together and start working to influence us. Now, deception is always making its way back in there, but there are those moments when it's almost non-existent, and God, or the Holy Spirit, has full influence. And when those moments happen to people recorded in the Bible, it'll say, so-and-so was fully influenced by the Holy Spirit. And your English translations will say that they were filled by or filled with the Holy Spirit. Being fully influenced by the Holy Spirit happens when your heart is focused on God and the things of God, and your mind is focused on the truth of God's Word, the Scriptures. And what happens is, after doing that for a while, it's like the light bulb in your head turns on and everything falls into place, mentally. Any confusion or questions that were there before suddenly disappear and everything falls into place and makes perfect sense and you see things with a clarity that's hard to explain. And sometimes, depending on how much truth was being blocked, the release of it is so overwhelming that there's usually a strong emotional reaction on our part. And that's where people tend to marry the phrase being filled by the Holy Spirit with some of the crazy stuff that goes on in some of today's congregations. And that's unfortunate because I think a lot of that is self-induced and borders on hysteria. Let me give you a personal example of what I think it means to be full of the Holy Spirit, or more precisely, fully influenced by the Holy Spirit. I remember there was a passage in Matthew that we'll get into in a future episode that really bothered me. And I read it over and over and over. The more I read it, the more troubled I was by it. And I prayed real hard about it. And finally, I just moved on because I couldn't figure it out. But it always bothered me. So I kept reading the Bible and decided to just put that particular verse out of my mind for the moment and pray that God would reveal what he really meant by that later. See, back then I used to read the Bible twice a day, a few chapters in the morning, and then at night I'd read myself to sleep. I don't remember exactly how much time had passed, but I do know it was at least a year. But then one day I read a verse that helped me understand a previous verse that connected to my understanding of another verse And then it became like a domino effect. Suddenly, a year's worth of scripture reading was connecting and falling into place at light speed. I mean, I could almost feel it in my head. Click, 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 click. All of that truth that had been sitting in there was being applied and working and functioning, and it all happened so fast, the feeling of the awakening was overwhelming. And the original verse that bothered me so much now made perfect sense. And it made so much sense that I wondered why I ever had a problem with it before. The point is, folks, when you're filled with or fully influenced by the Holy Spirit, there's always a reason. And you always know what that reason is. There isn't a single person in the scripture who was ever filled by the Holy Spirit who didn't know why. And here in Luke, it says that it occurred when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting and the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and then cried out a loud cry and exclaimed, How blessed and favored of God among all other women are you! And blessed and favored of God is the fruit of your womb! And how have I deserved this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And my question was, how did she know? What clicked? Since she first got pregnant, she's had six months to question and ponder over this miracle that's growing inside of her. She's an older woman who was barren, and I'm sure the fact that her husband, Zach, couldn't talk really impressed her. I'm sure he wrote down to her what happened in the temple, and she's had time to process it. 
My son is going to be a prophet that prepares the way for the Lord, the coming King, the Christ, the Messiah. But why me? Why me? God could have chosen anybody. Why me? And the Messiah is coming. So she's had six months to search the scriptures about the coming Messiah. Even though she's heard all about the coming Messiah, when she found out she was pregnant with a son who would grow up to be a prophet that prepares the way for the Lord, she ran to her Bible to get more details so she would know what to look for and find out more about the time period she was living in. And it would only be natural to ask the question, why me? She's had six months to ask that question while searching the scriptures. And she probably wondered about that prophecy in Isaiah. The young woman, the young woman who is unmarried, the young woman who is unmarried and a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. She's out there somewhere. Who is it? Do I know her? What does any of this have to do with me? Why me? And then suddenly her young unmarried niece ran into her house excited and she felt her unborn son leap inside of her. That's why it's me. I'm the aunt of the young woman who is unmarried and a virgin that's described in Isaiah. It's my niece. Elizabeth was fully influenced by the Holy Spirit and then cried out with a loud cry and exclaimed, How blessed and favored of God among all other women are you! And blessed and favored of God is the fruit of your womb. And how have I deserved this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For the instant the sound of your salutation reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told to her from the Lord. By the way, folks, when does life begin? Elizabeth was about six months pregnant at this point. John inside of her womb was about nine inches long, weighed about one and a half pounds. He had translucent skin. He'd open his eyes for very brief periods of time, gazing into the liquid darkness of his mother's womb. And as a fetus of six months, he was an emotional being. He could recognize through the Spirit that he was in the presence of the Lord. And he leaped in the womb. He had the capacity to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that say something about all the so-called debates about personhood? When does the fetus become a person? John was nine inches long and was a person that could be filled with the Holy Spirit and react emotionally to being in the presence of the Lord. And by the way, how far along was Mary in her pregnancy when this happened? She just got the news. She went straight over to Elizabeth's. Let's give a very liberal estimate. What was it? She was pregnant for, what, three days, maybe? And John reacted to being in the presence of the Lord, not a three-day-old zygote. Then Mary, in her joy and excitement, responds with a very poetic song that she was probably familiar with from the Old Testament with her own improvising. And all I can do here is read this and sum it up. I can't possibly recreate the emotion of her voice that she put into it. I don't know if her voice was quivering from tears of joy or if she ran around the rooms of the house screaming it at the top of her lungs. I have no idea. All we can do is read this. She responds, Oh, how my soul magnifies and extols the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He took notice of his lowly servant girl, and now generation after generation forever shall call me blessed of God. For he who is almighty has done great things to me. His mercy goes on from generation to generation, and to all who reverence him. How powerful is his mighty arm! How he scatters the proud and haughty ones! He has torn princes from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry hearts and sent the rich away empty. And how he has helped his servant Israel! 
He has not forgotten his promise to be merciful forever. For he promised our fathers Abraham and his children to be merciful to them forever. Folks, it's really amazing that Mary here would make the connection between all of this. You see, she knew the Old Testament. She had an intimate relationship with God. Now, she might not have been as learned as the Pharisees or the priests, but she did have a personal, intimate relationship with God, and she understood the Scriptures. She remembered the promises of the coming Messiah, and she goes all the way back to Abraham. It's amazing that she did that, folks. The more you understand the scenario between Abraham and Isaac, the more you'll understand that the entire mission of the Messiah's first visit to the planet Earth was one of taking upon the sin of the world. In the book of Genesis, we have the story of Abraham being asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, God doesn't endorse child sacrifice. He was playing out a prophecy, and Abraham knew that's what he was doing. He told his son Isaac on the way to the altar that God would provide himself a sacrifice. And, of course, when they got to the altar, God stopped Abraham from going all the way, and Abraham found a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So Abraham took the ram and offered it up for a sacrifice instead, a sacrifice that God himself had provided. Abraham didn't have to give up anything. Then Abraham gave the place a name. He called it, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, the Lord will provide. Two thousand years later, on that very spot, Jesus Christ died on the cross. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. It's all about God bridging the gap between himself and humanity. Humanity doesn't bridge the gap. We wouldn't be able to do it even if we knew how. Now, I don't know if Mary knew at this point that her unborn son was destined for the cross, but it is interesting that in her song of praise, she sees what's happening as a fulfillment of God's promises laid out in the Old Testament, including the promises that God gave to Abraham. Verse 56 says that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then went back to her own home. By now, Elizabeth is nine months pregnant, and her waiting was over, for the time had come for the baby to be born, and it was a boy. The word spread quickly to her neighbors and relatives of how kind the Lord had been to her, and everyone was especially delighted in that God showed mercy towards her during labor. In other words, folks, it was an easy labor. When the baby was eight days old, all of the relatives and the friends came over for the circumcision ceremony. They all assumed that the baby's name would be Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth said, Not so. He must be named John. And they said to her, But none of your relatives are even called by that name. And they inquired with signs of his father what he wanted to have him called. Folks, this kind of gives you the impression that Zach may have been deaf on top of being speechless because they were talking to him with signs and hand gestures. Then Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and then wrote, His name is John. They were all astonished by this. And at once... Zach's mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak blessing, praises, and thanking God. Awe and reverential fear came upon all of their neighbors, and all of these things were discussed and talked about all throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard about these things laid them up in their hearts, saying, Whatever will this little boy be? For the hand of the Lord is so evidently with him, protecting and aiding him. Zechariah, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied the following, saying, Blessed, praised, extolled, and thanks be the Lord God of Israel, because he has come and brought deliverance and redemption to his people. Wow! What a difference from the Zach we saw in the temple. See what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit? When he was in the temple nine months ago, 
He couldn't accept the truth that the angel Gabriel told him because the knowledge of his age and the knowledge of his wife's age were too heavy of an influence over his mind to accept the truth of what he was being told. But he's had nine months of deafness and speechlessness to focus and ponder what Gabriel told him as he watched the stomach of his old barren wife get bigger and bigger. Since the deceitful influences in his mind had been removed, he could now focus on the truth that he already knew, because he was a priest, he knew the scriptures. And he's had the last three months to think about Mary's news. She was a virgin. So for Zach, everything was falling into place, and now listen to him. Before it was, that's impossible, I'm an old man and so is my wife. Now he's prophesying the deliverance and redemption of the coming Messiah, who at this point is only a three-month-old fetus in Mary's womb. He says, Blessed, praised, extolled, and thanked be to the Lord God of Israel, because he has come and brought deliverance and redemption to his people. He has raised up in the house of David a horn of salvation. Several places in the Bible, folks, you'll find the word horn being used in a way that we're not used to. But in this sense, and in the ancient culture, the horn of an animal was symbolic of its power or its authority. So when Zach says that God has raised up in the house of David a horn of salvation, he's talking about Jesus. Because Jesus is the power and the author of salvation. Zach said, The Lord has raised up in the house of David a horn of salvation, the author of salvation. This is as he promised by the mouth of his holy prophets from the most ancient times in the memory of man, that we should have deliverance and be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who detest and pursue us with hatred, to make true and show mercy and compassion and kindness promised to our forefathers, and to remember and carry out his holy covenant made by God himself, that covenant he sealed by oath to our forefather Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered by the hand of our foes, might serve him fearlessly in holiness and divine consecration and righteousness within his presence all the days of our life. And you, little one, looking down at his eight-day-old son, you, little one, shall be called the prophet of the Most High. For you shall go before the face of the Lord to make ready his ways, and to bring and give knowledge of salvation to his people, and the forgiveness and remission of their sins. Because of the heart and tender mercy and loving kindness of our God, a light from on high will dawn upon us and visit us, to shine upon and give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to direct and guide our feet in a straight line into the way of peace. Now, folks, it was at this time that there was an incident with Joseph that doesn't get recorded here in Luke, but it does get recorded in Matthew. So to follow the chronology, let's go over to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We're going to find out that Joseph may not have bought this whole idea that Mary was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. As far as he knew, she was a virgin, and he knew he hadn't had intercourse with her, but now she's pregnant. And the official story is that she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ took place under these circumstances. When his mother Mary had been promised in marriage to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And her promised husband Joseph, being a just and upright man, not willing to expose her publicly, the King James says not willing to make her a public example, he was minded to put her away privately. So in other words, folks, no matter what the official story was, this was not Joseph's baby, period. 
So him, being a just and upright man, he felt that it wasn't his place to be married to her. But he didn't want to make a big deal out of it. He didn't want to publicly humiliate her or disgrace her. So he decided to dismiss the engagement quietly and in secret. Verse 20. But as he was thinking this over, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, descendant of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which in Hebrew means Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. A couple of points here. I think it's interesting that an angel in this case doesn't materialize in the real world while he is awake, but instead chooses to appear to him in a dream. Maybe Joseph's heart wouldn't have been able to stand the stress of a daytime visit. A lot of things are easier to cope with in that foggy, dreamlike state. Dreams can at times be extremely vivid, but the thoughts of the mind are timeless. You ever noticed how once a dream starts, you're not disoriented? You don't have to have someone sit you down first to explain to you where you are, what you're playing, and what's happening in the plot so far. I remember once I dreamed I was a teacher at a school. And the funny thing about that was, I didn't dream the training that I needed to be a teacher. I didn't dream the job interview. I didn't dream my first day as a teacher. But apparently, in the world of my dream, all of that did take place. Because I was a teacher, it was normal, I knew I was a teacher, and I never questioned, what am I doing here? I'm not a teacher. To steal a line from an old twilight zone, a dream is complete with its own past, and as long as you stay asleep, its own future. And there's something about that world you participate in while you're dreaming, folks. For some reason, the ability to grasp things is quicker, and the ability to believe the unbelievable is also somewhat easier. The emotional stability that's necessary to accept things which in the real world would scare the crap out of us is also present in dreams, for whatever reason. And it's my opinion that this is probably why God, all throughout the Bible, at times communicates to people in dreams. Not directly, but by a vision. And in this case, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. But anyway, the angel confirms for him that Mary's son really is of the Holy Spirit. The angel tells him, don't be afraid to marry her. She's telling you the truth. And then the angel even confirms the name. He says, you are to name him Jesus, which in the Hebrew tense means Savior, but in the Greek, the name Jesus means literally, God is salvation. Verse 22. All this took place that it might be fulfilled, which the Lord has spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Quote, Behold, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which when translated means God with us. Unquote. That's from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took her to his side as his wife, but he had no union with her as her husband until she had borne her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph married her, but chose not to have intercourse with her until after Jesus was born. Now, to continue the chronology, let's go back to the book of Luke and start in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In those days it occurred that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole Roman Empire should be registered. This was the first tax enrollment, and it was made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Folks, here's an example of where Bible skeptics will try to prove that the Bible isn't accurate. The King James Bible says the governor of Syria was Serenius. 
Atheists and agnostics love to pull out this Bible verse in the King James and then say, Did you know that they've proven that Cyrenius wasn't governor over Syria during the first census? Hmm? The governor over Syria during the first census was Governor Cyrenius, not Cyrenius. Cyrenius was governor over Syria much earlier. See, your Bible's wrong. Throw it away. There is no God. Well, this kind of stuff happens a lot, by the way. Get used to it. It turns out that they're partially correct. There was a previous governor over Syria named Cyrenius, and they're also correct in that the governor over Syria during the first census was Governor Cyrenius. But Cyrenius wasn't his full name. His full name was Cyrenius something something Cyrenius. And when the Bible was translated into the King James English, they just carried over Cyrenius and dropped the Cyrenius. The King James translators didn't know that in the 20th century and beyond, there would be people who study the Bible even more than some Christians do, trying to discredit it. So that's why you'll notice the King James translation is the only translation that calls the governor of Syria, Cyrenius. While all of the other translations call him Cyrenius. Both translations are accurate. Both names belong to the same governor. But because there was another governor beforehand with the name Cyrenius, the newer translations only use Cyrenius, to shut the atheists up, because it's the part of his name that's unique to this particular time period of the first census. Whenever someone comes up with evidence that proves the Bible is wrong, quote-unquote, all you have to do is just a little homework, and you'll always discover that the claim is invalid. Always. As a matter of fact, that's why most atheists who are dead serious about debunking the Bible will usually wind up becoming Christians themselves. Because in their attempt to seriously debunk it, they discover themselves how accurate it is. Those who don't really aren't serious about debunking the Bible. They just want to discredit it in the minds of Christians and advance their own agenda regardless of what the truth is. So anyway, back to Luke. In those days it occurred that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole Roman Empire should be registered. This was the very first tax enrollment and it was made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all of the people were going to be registered, each to his own city or town. And Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to the town of David in Judea called Bethlehem. Joseph was of the house and family of David. And he went to be enrolled with Mary, his espoused wife, who was about to become a mother. While they were there, the time came for her delivery. And she gave birth to a son, her firstborn. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room or place for them in the inn. So Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem to get counted in the census. And so was everyone else of that area. So there's a lot going on. And while they were there, Mary goes into labor. And of course, they attempted to get somewhere that was comfortable and clean, but there was no room for them in their local inn because everyone from out of town was there to take part in the census. So they wind up in a barn somewhere. And it says that she wrapped the baby in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Swaddling clothes were long strips of cloth to keep the baby's arms from being bent in the wrong direction. It was to keep them straight and unharmed. And the word manger there is a word that we're used to hearing because of all the Christmas songs. But a manger was a barnyard feeding trough. Just in case you ever start to feel underappreciated, always remember that our Creator, the King of the Universe, spent His very first moments on the planet Earth in a barnyard feeding trough. Verse 8, In that vicinity there were shepherds living out under the open sky in the field, watching over their flocks by night. It was the night shift. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord flashed and shone all about them. 
and they were terribly frightened. The King James says they were sore afraid. This is one of those occasions where the King James uses language that's foreign to our ears, but it's actually more accurate than any other translation. All other translations say they were terrified or terribly frightened. Only the King James says they were sore afraid. Not so afraid, that's kind of what we hear when someone reads it out loud, but it's S-O-R-E, as in physically sore. The emotional fear that they had was so intense that they physically felt it. It was a fear that gripped their entire body. You know, our imagination is incredibly dependent these days on what we've seen on TV. Most productions ever made about the Christmas story are low in budget and most of the time low in grammatical study. And of course, many churches across America attempt to recreate some of this as a display so people can drive through it as a Christmas outing. But what we usually see are some shepherds standing in the presence of some attractive young girls wearing white sheets, and what they'll usually do is to try to make it dark everywhere else and then shine a spotlight on the young girls with their arms spread out. But I don't think attractive young girls in a spotlight wearing white sheets would make me sore afraid. First of all, angels always appear throughout the entire Bible in the masculine. And once again, read the fine print here. It says the glory of the Lord shone all about them, not the glory of the angel, the glory of the Lord. How do you recreate that as a display for Christmas drivers? All throughout the Bible, when the light of God is present, it's blinding. It's brighter than the sun. So try to imagine you're a shepherd watching over sheep, and it's the night shift. Just another night in the fields watching over the sheep. And this is back in the days before automobiles and interstate highways, so it was extremely quiet. You didn't hear the distant sound of cars on the road or the occasional jet flying overhead. And then out of nowhere, suddenly, a masculine supernatural entity materializes right next to you. It didn't walk over the hill or fly down from the sky. It just suddenly appeared right there in your presence, accompanied by the radiant, blinding brightness of God's glory, which lit up the entire area. When I was a kid, I used to notice how when lightning flashes at night, for a brief moment during each lightning flash, it looks almost like daylight. You can see everything, but only for a fraction of a second during the lightning flash. Well, this isn't lightning. This is the glory of the Lord. And it says the glory of the Lord flashed and shone all about them. The King James and other translations just says it shone all about them. The Amplified brings out the precise Greek. It did shine all around them, yes, but it also flashed. So instead of a steady glow, the light was flashing, and the effects of this blinding, flashing, radiant light shone all about them. And it wasn't coming from the angel that was standing next to them. It was the glory of the Lord. The entire landscape was probably as bright as daylight. So try to keep your limited imagination due to Hollywood's lame attempts at recreating this from really appreciating what's happening here in these verses. Everything these shepherds knew to be their reality was interrupted and put on hold for this superphysical trans-dimensional display, and they were sore afraid. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all people. For to you is born this day in the town of David a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you by which you will recognize him. You will find, after searching, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then suddenly, there appeared with the angel an army of the troops of heaven, a heavenly knighthood, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. 
Just a couple of notes about some of the words in here, folks. The King James, the American Standard, the NIV, and the Living Bible all say, suddenly there appeared with the angel a heavenly host. A host in this sense was a military term. That's why the Amplified Translation goes all the way and translates it, the troops of heaven, a heavenly knighthood. These are the angels that are engaged in battle against the forces of darkness all around us, 24 hours a day. And all throughout the Old Testament... Satan had been doing everything he could to stop this night from coming. We see a lot of it in the scriptures through the manifestation of satanic influence over world affairs. What we don't see is the war that's going on behind the scenes, or to use a biblical term, behind the veil. And for a moment here, these particular shepherds are getting a glimpse of a bigger reality that we don't normally see. The troops of heaven. Also notice here that it says they were praising God, saying, not singing. The King James, the Amplified, the New American Standard, and the NIV all translate this accurately. The angelic army praised God, saying. We tend to imagine angels in the feminine floating around singing like a church choir. But this wasn't singing. This was the masculine troops of the armies of heaven cheering. The Living Bible is the only translation that says they were singing. And that's an inaccurate paraphrase. They were cheering. They cheered, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. Now here's a case where the King James gets it wrong. The King James says, Peace and good will toward men. The original Greek said, Peace to men of good will. Or more precisely, Peace to men on whom his favor rests. Other Bible translations try to get this part of the verse right. The New American Standard says, Peace among men with whom he is pleased. The NIV says, Peace to men on whom his favor rests. The Living Bible says, Peace on earth for all those pleasing Him. You know, it's interesting that the Living Translation got that part of the verse right. Just before that, it took liberties and said the angels were singing these words when they weren't. But then it got this part of the verse right, where the King James got it wrong. The Amplified goes all the way and says, Peace among men with whom He is well pleased, men of good will, and of His favor. Folks, let me take this point in our conversation to just say something real quick about English Bibles, just for a second. If you completely rely on just one English translation, you are really impairing your understanding of the Scriptures. We all have our favorites, and that's fine. Mine's the Amplified because of its exhaustive thoroughness to really communicate everything the original language was trying to communicate. But the Amplified's not 100% accurate. Earlier, when it talked about the shepherds being afraid, the King James did the best job by saying they were sore afraid. But the King James isn't 100% accurate either, because it completely misquotes the words of the angels. They didn't say peace and goodwill toward men. They specifically said peace to men of goodwill. That's why if you speak English, folks, you're really impairing your understanding of the scriptures if you just limit yourself to a single translation. I've known people who are extremely unreasonable about this. They see it as a competition. Mine's the most accurate. Well, no. The original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic is the most accurate. That's why God himself chose to have it composed in those languages. The rest of us are trying to understand it with English, which is one of the most impaired and vague languages ever contrived. But Josh, I know my Bible backwards and forwards. It took me my whole life to memorize it and become familiar with it. Well, that's great. That's awesome. Add to that knowledge. There's no such thing as a Christian graduate. The learning never stops. And nobody's trying to replace your Bible. Don't look at it that way. Since my favorite is the Amplified, that's the one I'm most familiar with, and I'm always going to try to push it because it is my favorite. But I would never say to you that the Amplified is the most accurate translation, and everyone else needs to throw their Bible away and get an Amplified. 
That would be foolish. Sometimes the Amplified is the best. Sometimes the King James is the best. Sometimes the NIV is the best. Sometimes the New American Standard is the best. I mean, we all have our favorites, and that's fine. But if you're going to talk about accuracy, all of them screw up every now and then. So you can't completely depend on one for total accuracy. And you really can't rule one out either. Well, I take that back. Yes, you can. There's dozens of politically correct Bibles that are total garbage. There's English translations tailored just for specific groups and various cults. I'm not talking about those. I don't even recognize those as real Bibles. Those are English Bibles that have been edited and rewritten by people who promote an anti-biblical agenda. The quest for accuracy is the very last thing on their minds. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the five well-known and well-traveled English Bibles. The King James, the New American Standard, the Amplified, the NIV, and the Living Bible. Collectively, as a whole, those five English translations are the most well-known, well-traveled, and most accurate English translations in existence. But of those five, you can't completely depend on just one for total accuracy. And of those five, you really can't rule one out as being totally useless either. The one that is probably the most inaccurate is the Living Bible, because it's a line-for-line paraphrase rather than a word-for-word translation. It's the easiest to read, it flows, but it's probably the one with the most mistakes, and because of that, you would think that the Living Bible would be the one translation to completely ignore if you were going to ignore one. But of all the biblical English translations in existence, it's the only one that accurately identified the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 as fallen angels. It blew me away when I found that out. Of all of its mistakes and liberties, it somehow got that right where all other translations blew it. So become familiar with one English translation and make it your favorite, but don't discredit the other five because they're all valuable at getting to the original meaning behind God's originally chosen words in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. But anyway, back to Luke. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste. Now, I don't know how long the shepherds stood there before they took off. The Bible says that they went with haste, but not until after they said to each other, Let's go check this out. And they didn't say that until after the angels disappeared. So, I just wonder how much time passed between the moment the angels disappeared and the moment they said to each other, let's go over to Bethlehem to check this out. I wonder how long they stood there in the dark after being blinded by the shining, flashing radiance of God's glory and having the inside of their chest vibrate from the base of the roaring cheers of the armies of heaven. I've often thought about this entire scenario when I'm standing outside at night. You know, I look up at the stars, and it's dark, and it's quiet. And I tried to imagine the sky being filled by the armies of heaven with bright blinding light while hearing the unison cheers of them saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. And then suddenly the armies disappear, the cheering stops, the blinding light is gone, and then suddenly everything's back to normal. Again with the stillness and the darkness of night, like nothing ever happened. I don't know about you, but I need just a moment to process all this, or at least catch my breath. But the scriptures say, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste, and after searching, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known what had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it were astounded and marveled at what the shepherds told them. But Mary 
kept within herself all of these things and weighed them and pondered them in her heart. Once again, try to imagine this, folks. Mary and Joseph didn't witness any supernatural display. Mary and Joseph's supernatural moment was months earlier when they were told by an angel what was going to happen. But since then, it's been a waiting game. And when the time for her delivery came, it didn't seem like everything was falling into place. I mean, what timing? Now, of all times, while she's nine months pregnant, Caesar Augustus decides that there has to be a census by law, and everybody had to travel to their original home to be counted. You know, now, of all times, Caesar's law became Murphy's law, right? And then when labor hits, guess what? There's no room at the end. So she has the baby in a barn and puts him in a feeding trough. No fireworks, no trumpets blasting, just a regular birth. But then, here comes these shepherds with this incredible story about what they heard and saw. I mean, no matter who you are in this story, there's a lot to process and talk about. I'm sure the shepherds and Joseph had a long talk about this, but Mary just went through labor, and she's taking all of this in. And she's just quietly laying all of these things up in her heart, weighing them and pondering them over. And the shepherds returned to their fields, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when the baby was to be circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And this brings us to the conclusion of the Christmas story, Jesus' birthday. If you're wondering what happened to the wise men, they show up later. In spite of what we see in people's front yards around Christmas time, the wise men never showed up at the manger scene. They came much later. Jesus may have been as old as two years when they showed up. And contrary to popular belief, there were much more than just three. The background behind the people we commonly think of as the wise men is a very fascinating story. And it'll shed a lot of light behind what was really going on in their conversation with King Herod. So we'll get into all of that next time.